we're going to begin, or not begin, we began last week, continue our series on Philippians. Uh, as we are thinking about, as we go through Philippians, this will be the next eight or nine weeks probably. It's only four chapters, but you know how it is. It'll be eight or nine weeks. Uh, the joy of the Lord, and, and this is the, the emphasis that I want to make throughout the entire book, is the concept of joy uh, as he's talking to the Philippians. Philippians 1 verse 12, I, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, last week we looked at the traditional greeting, right? He talks about his love for them, his, his, his relationship with them. We talked about in Acts chapter 16, the things that he did in Philippi and the relationships that he built. And right after that greeting, he gets right to the heart of the matter. Remember, Paul has undergone, at this point, several years of struggle. First, he's arrested in Jerusalem. Well, other than that, well, he had a lot of struggle before that. But he's arrested in Jerusalem, falsely accused. Then, after that, he's shuffled from place to place. He spends a while in a couple of different places, up to two years, uh, just sort of under arrest. And he's talking to various people, but he, nobody is willing to let him go. And then finally, he arrives in Rome and immediately is put under house arrest. So for the last few years, Paul has not been a free man. He's been in a, a great amount of struggle and limitation in where he can go and what he can do. And, and so for the people who had experienced the power of the Spirit, right? This is the people that knew Paul, had met Paul. There was a real danger of despair. The question being, had the Holy Spirit abandoned Paul? He was preaching, he was teaching, he was evangelizing, doing all this stuff. Now he's under arrest. He's been under arrest for several years. Now he's in Rome under house arrest. He can't do what he wants. And if the Spirit had abandoned Paul, what about them? What about the Philippians? If this could happen to Paul, who's an apostle, who's one of the, the people that was most influential in the early church, then what, what, what hope did the Philippians have? The, just me, random guy in the pew... Of course, they don't have pews at that time, but me, random guy in Philippi, what, what a hope do I have if this is going to happen to Paul? And so Paul is trying to encourage them in the middle of his difficulty. What does he say? I want you to know that what has happened to me is really good. It served to advance the gospel. And so the major theme of Philippians is joy in Christ. We're going to talk about a number of ways this applies throughout the book of Philippians. But in the first section here, Paul's first emphasis in the letter. I know bad stuff's happening to me. I know things are looking pretty dire. But I still have joy. Why? Why does he have joy? It comes from his priorities, what he cares about. And so we see, first of all, his priorities in prison. As we think about the, the reading that was read for us, we think about what he's talking about here. Remember, I want you to remember as we're, we're reading this, that he's talking from jail. Well, house arrest. Not free. That he is writing from his confinement in these words. Philippians 1, 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, not all, but most, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. How did his imprisonment serve to advance the gospel? Where well, he gives a couple of ways. Number one, he can now talk to the guards, right? You think about his mindset of evangelism. It's not like he was out on an island by himself like John, although John could receive visitors later on in Patmos. He's, he's not isolated entirely. There's got to be some people watching him. And so what is he saying? Well, now I've been able to talk to the whole guard. 
Uh, you know, he has the rotate, probably rotating guards. And you, don't you know the guards on Paul's assignment? They're like, oh, I got to go listen to that guy again. Don't you know they, they were doing that as they, they were rotating out? Man, he's really, he's really, uh, he's really uh, chatty today, new guard. He's probably going to talk your ear off about Jesus again. And what does it end up? The whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He had opportunities, opportunities to talk to people that except for this unusual circumstance, probably no Christians would ever have any opportunity to interact with, right? The church in Rome, they don't really have access to the imperial guard. They just never would. And so Paul's thinking even now, hey, here's the chance. I can talk to some people. Probably no other Christians are ever going to get to talk to. So here I am. I'm going to talk to them. But we see a second thing here. Why would his imprisonment give the brothers confidence? Well, if Paul can evangelize in jail, maybe I can do that at least out here, right? If, if he's going to keep doing this, he can keep doing this in his circumstance. Well, here I am. I'm, I'm not under house arrest. I can go wherever I want. I can do whatever I want. If he can do it, surely I can. If he can do it, what is it that I can do that, that even more perhaps than Paul could do? Because he's under house arrest. He's evangelizing. Great for him. But I can be more bold. I can be more confident because I have more opportunity, at least at this point, as you think about what Paul's dealing with in his life. And he goes on in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. We'll talk about this in just a minute as we think about envy and rivalry in preaching. What does that mean? But others with goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, this, this statement deserves a little consideration, this odd statement whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. Is he, is he rejoicing in falsehood here? Well, we have to consider his past behavior regarding false teaching. We know from his engaging with the Jews throughout his ministry, and, and not just the Jews, but other Christians too, but mostly coming from uh, the Jews who did not like what he was preaching, that he had no qualms about calling out false ideas. That he did not allow them to say things that were untrue. Wherever he was going, he was confronting and, and, and making sure that what was true was taught. So we can infer, safely infer, that that's not what's happening here. These people, whoever they are, Paul thinks they are saying true things. They're not saying false things. Now they have bad motivations, but what they're saying is true about Jesus, about the gospel, about maybe Jesus' life, or about some things that happened in the first century, or whatever that people are supposed to do. Any number of things that would be taught here. So what's happening? There's an element of competition in this. You know, Paul, several times in his letters, he had to defend his apostleship, right? The, the people that were thinking he was inferior, that, ah, he's, he's a latecomer, he's not really that important, he's not really that good. And there... It seems to be, at least from this verse and a few other verses, that some people had sort of rivalry in the preaching sphere. And this is true today, too. Let's be honest, right? There's people who, they're really not in it for the truth. They're in it for the fame or they're in it for the, probably not money, but they're in it for the, the prestige or, you know, whatever it is. They're in it for some selfish reason. And Paul's point is what? Hey, yeah, there's people like that. How would their preaching afflict him? 
Because they're able to convert people and, and he's in jail. He's stuck in jail. And, and I'm thinking selfishly, oh, if I convert a bunch of people while Paul's in jail, then my numbers are going up and his numbers are staying flat and I'm winning, right? I'm winning and Paul's going to feel bad about that. Well, joke's on them because Paul doesn't feel bad about that. What is he saying? I don't care. They're going to do it. Great. In that, I rejoice because more people are coming to Christ. Christ is being proclaimed. Again, we have to be clear. Not that these people are saying false things. He's not rejoicing about that. But he really couldn't care less about their motivation. As long as they're preaching Christ truthfully, he doesn't feel any need to be the one to convert the people. He doesn't feel any need to be the one to get the quote-unquote glory. He just wants it to be done. And so he has joy in the midst of his imprisonment. Why? Because he doesn't care about the kinds of things that people in the world care about. He doesn't care about personal fame. He doesn't care about personal glory. He doesn't care even about freedom necessarily, right? What does he say? So that it become through the whole imperial garden to the rest of my, uh, that my imprisonment is for Christ. He doesn't care about being free. He just cares about having opportunity to preach. And he still has that, even in the midst of his imprisonment. So we see his priorities in jail. Secondly, we see his shifting priorities in life. The things that are different about what he thinks about life and death itself. Philippians 1.18 Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Was Paul ever delivered? Well, we know he wasn't. He doesn't know that at this point. Uh, the Philippians can't possibly know that at this point either. We know, looking back on this reading, he was never delivered. He dies on, in house arrest. But he does go on to say what? This idea of lack of shame. The, that he doesn't want to be ashamed in his imprisonment, his shame would not come from whether he's convicted, whether he's freed, whether he's released. That's not his shame. His shame is, do people know who I serve? In this situation, can people know about my faith? So whether or not he's released from jail is irrelevant to his shame. Because as long as he can make known the gospel, whether by life or by death, he says, is Christ being honored? In my imprisonment, can I honor Christ? And if so, why would he be ashamed? I'm in jail. And this is Paul, right? I'm in jail because I was preaching. Why would I be ashamed of being in jail? And if I'm released, well, that's great. Then I can go preach some more. And if I'm not released, so be it. Now, he has expectation of deliverance. This is a, an, uh, a passage that shows us the apostles were not omniscient, right? He had expectation of deliverance, which never came. He wasn't omniscient, but he was hopeful. He was encouraged. He was faithful. Because again, he had different priorities. For to live is Christ, to die is gain. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot. He's talking like he's choosing, right? Is he going to choose to live or die? And again, remember, he's writing from in prison. It's not like he's in control of his own life. I am hard pressed between the two. Between which two? To live and to die. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Again, we see here he's, he's very much anticipating being released, a thing that we know will not happen. But here's the question. Is this how you feel about life and death? Do you think, and it, it takes some self-honesty here, guys. Do you think that it would be better for you to die? Better for you to die than to live. That's what he's saying here, right? My desire, the thing that he wants, is to depart and be with Christ. Let's not be beat around the bush. My desire is to die, is what he's saying. For that is far better. Why is it better? Well, for one thing, you wouldn't be stuck in prison. No more suffering. No more thorn. We talk about the thorn in the flesh sometimes. The thorn in the flesh that Paul had, 2 Corinthians 12, whatever that is. Wouldn't have to put up with that anymore. Wouldn't have to put up with all of this weird rivalry going on in preaching. Wouldn't have to put up with the ailments of the body. Wouldn't have to put up with the stupidity of people. Paul was a guy who got frustrated at people's idiocy sometimes. Wouldn't have to put up with that anymore. It would be better for me to die, but what? But if I keep living, then I can be a benefit to other people. (laughs) Then I can keep helping you. Notice that even in prison, thinking about life and death, how can I continue to benefit other people? It would be better for me to stay here, not for my own sake, because I'd rather go rest and be with Jesus, but it would be better for me to live for your sake. Because I can continue to encourage. I can continue to help you progress, he says, for your progress and joy in the faith. I can continue to be a source of joy for you if I remain. Is this how you think about life and death? That it would be, logically speaking, right, better to die for selfish reasons. But it's better to live for others. Not for the self, right? The Christian idea very much alters the way we think about life and death. But are you thinking about your continued earthly existence as a conduit for the joy of others? So even though he was enduring a, different, a difficult trial, Paul had joy because his joy did not derive from his own situation or himself. It did not come from him or what was he was going through. Even though he was in prison, the gospel was still advancing. Hooray for that! He says, in that I will rejoice. Doesn't matter if I'm in prison or not. Are people hearing the gospel? Yes? Okay, great. And even though he was in prison, the Philippians were still being faithful. And he talks about that, right? That he hears about their love and their faith and their continued encouragement. And he's really thinking about how can I be an encouragement to them and and can I do so? Yes, I can still be encouraging to the Philippians. Well, great. It doesn't matter I'm in prison. I can still be encouraging to them. This change in priorities affected every part of his persona. Again, I cannot stress this enough. The logical conclusion to the Christian faith is that on an individual level, death is preferable. To be with Jesus, to rest from our labors, to be united with the Lord. Hallelujah! But on a communal level, we persist in life 
because we can be a blessing to others. Because we can bring others to Christ. And because we can encourage one another to remain faithful to Christ. And, you know, thinking about it again, logically, if all the Christians suddenly died, who would teach more people? The answer is nobody. So we know that we have to persist in difficult circumstances. But because others were his priority, he was able to endure. Just like we, if we can shift what we prioritize, we can have joy. And in fact, we can have joy exactly to the extent that we are able to alter what we care about. Because the Christian joy is not dependent upon human circumstance. It's not dependent upon what's going on in my life. It's dependent on two things. Number one, do I have a relationship with God? And number two, can I be an encouragement to others? That was the source of Paul's joy. So it doesn't matter that he's in prison. He still has a relationship with God. He can still encourage others. Whatever's going on in your life. Again, can you alter the way you care about things? No matter what's happening, a disease, a bad job situation, a, a bad family situation, if you can be in a relationship with God and be an encouragement to others, you can still have joy. This is the kids song, right? J-O-Y. You guys know this? We're going to sing it right now. J-O-Y, J-O-Y, this is what it means. Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. J-O-Y, J-O-Y, this is what it means. Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. That's a children's song. None of you probably have sung that in the last three months, probably. Six months, I don't know. However long it was since you sang that song. Isn't that what Paul's saying here? Jesus is first. The Philippians are second. And I'm last. Which means I can have what? Joy. I can have joy. Because it's not about me. And so as we conclude, to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is one of the hardest Christian lessons to learn. To internalize the truth of the gospel is to alter the very foundation of how we think about life and death. To alter at the most basic level. The fear of death is one of the most primal instincts that every living thing has. Even plants. Even plants have that. That they recoil when there's some sort of difficulty or struggle in life. Every living thing is afraid of ending. The truth of the gospel changes that most fundamental paradigm of living. That I'm not afraid of dying anymore. Now, I might be afraid of the act of dying, right? We make a difference here. I might be afraid of the, the actual process of how that happens. But I should no longer be afraid of the end of my life. Because that's the better thing. That's the, that's the, the end, the goal that I'm going to be with Christ. How do you think about death? How does it make you feel? What does the way you live say about how you feel about life and death? Not that you're going to be a daredevil, right? I'm going to go do a bunch of daredevilly things. But that you're going to be more bold. His point was that they, people were more bold. Christians were more bold in proclaiming the gospel. Is that how you think about life and death? I will remain, why? For your joy in the faith. You think about your mission. What drives you to do what you do? 
And again, the question, what does the way you live say to others about your priorities? Every day, we're telling others about ourselves. Not necessarily with words. If you're a narcissist, maybe it is with words. But every day, by the things that we do, the things we choose to do and the things we choose not to do, the things that we think about, how we spend our money, who we spend our time with, where we spend our time, is telling others what we care about. Implicitly, telling others what we care about. And as people look at your life, they're seeing you have priorities. You care about certain things, whatever they are. Is it obvious that others are your priority? Is it obvious that being a source of Christian joy to others is your priority? It should be, right? It should be obvious if we've made that switch. But maybe it isn't. Only that in every way, Christ is proclaimed and in that, I rejoice. Can our difficulties, and maybe I should say your difficulties, can your difficulties, again, I don't know what it is, whatever's going on in your life, I don't know, lead to the proclaiming of Christ? The answer is yes, they can. The more pertinent question is how can you, how can we facilitate that? In our struggles, in our difficulties, what are we doing to continue to advance the gospel. In Paul's case, stuck in prison. What could he do? Well, I got these guards that keep coming. They have to listen to me. They have to be here. So I'm going to tell them about Jesus. For you, I don't know what it is, right? Maybe it's a work situation or a health situation or a whatever it is. It brings you into contact with others. And your particular unique difficulties in life bring you into contact with unique sets of people. People that maybe nobody else in this group is going to ever interact with. What does that give you an opportunity to do? That gives you an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to people that might otherwise never hear it. If we have what? The boldness and the confidence that we see in the early church. We'll end with Acts 4, 29 through 31. This prayer, after a persecution in the early church... A prayer of the church thinking about difficult times that they were enduring. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through, your, uh, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They didn't ask for easy lives. Today, in this room, I hope that we are filled with the Spirit. I hope we are. I know that some of us are. I'm very confident of that. Maybe you're not. But you could be, right? Today, you could be filled with His Spirit to the end goal of that is not to make our lives easy. The end goal of that is to what? To give us boldness. To change how we think and what we care about. To give us, in a very real sense, joy in the work that we get to do in service to Him. As we conclude, we offer an invitation. Filled with the Spirit, if you're not sure what that looks like, if you're not sure what that means... Let us know. We'd love to study with you. And if you're ready to make that a reality, to repent, to confess, to be immersed into Christ, we can do that today too, can't we?
Come while we stand and sing.